If this uh, is unusual for you, it's unusual for all of us. So um, we're in this location, and I think Beth's going to help us understand that a little bit more later um, uh, for this month. And it, it's good. To, I, I feel like, uh, since I'm a teacher, that I should all give you an exam since you're sitting in this. Uh, <laughs> so this would be really great uh, right now, but um, I won't do that. And it's uh, good to know also that, uh, as college students do, uh, we're breaking the rules already. Um, by blocking the door. So um, life is good. Um, well, Christianity is a, uh, a religion for losers. And, and those who observe Ash Wednesday are just Jesus freaks. Thank you, Ted Turner. Uh, he said those things. Um, and, and is it any wonder that the church has a, an inferiority complex when people like Ted Turner, um, who thankfully has made some peace with the church uh, a few years back, uh, that, that we have an inferiority complex when people make those, those kinds of comments about us. And the, but the irony is this, that while Ted Turner is the CEO of his media empire, uh, God is actually the CEO of the universe and has a long-range plan for the world and his empire is growing. And the church is part of this grand scheme. And what we're doing this morning, then, is not some little social nicety. You're not doing this as, a, as your social obligation for the week. Uh, we're participating right now in God's history of redeeming his people and establishing his kingship over all creation. A plan that began with a promise that he made in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve that he would crush the serpent's head. In fact, what Paul is getting at in his letter to the Ephesian church, and we're following his letter for several weeks, uh, in several months actually, what he's getting at is that the church is not a holding tank for Christians to give them something to do, you know, while we're waiting for some rapture to take us into outer space. That's not what the church is about. What he's getting at is that the church is the body of Christ. And as the body of Christ, it's the heart and the center of God's, of Christ's reign on earth. A reign that began at Christ's resurrection and ascension and will continue until he hands over to the Father all things and the kingdom of God is finally established once and for all. Now, up to this point in Paul's letter, what we've been looking at is Paul blessing God for all that God has blessed us with. But now, in this letter, he turns his attention to a prayer asking God to bless us so that we can do what God wants us to do as church. Paul's prayer for the church is, is so important. As the earthly body of Christ what Jesus began to do and what Jesus uh, taught uh, in his earthly ministry is being continued by the church. And, and, and what we're doing as church is fleshing out what uh, it means for Christ to make all things subject to himself. And, and this is the mandate that Jesus left for his disciples in the gospel reading that we had today. At the end of Luke's gospel, this is the mandate that Jesus gave to his disciples. In verses 47 and 48, I don't know the verses aren't marked, but, but in that, what we read in Luke's gospel, uh, he tells them this is what God always had planned. 
for Jesus, King Jesus, which, which was really, by the way, King is a good translation for the word Messiah, the anointed one. King Jesus suffered, died, and was raised. That was God's plan all along, so that repentance and forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all nations, to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, wait in this city, uh, and raiding out from that point. And then you, says, says Jesus, you, the church, are witnesses of these things. Well, Paul has heard, apparently, from what we've read so far in Ephesians and what we're reading now today, Paul has heard that this Ephesian church is taking this mission quite seriously. He's heard their faith in Christ, and he's heard of their love for all of God's people, especially as it involves the reconciliation of Jews and Gentiles in one body of Christ, and for that he is very thankful, especially as he writes this letter because he's sitting in prison as he writes this letter. And the reason he's sitting in prison is because he has taken the risk throughout his entire ministry to preach this gospel to the outsiders, to the Gentiles. And then he took an even bigger risk, and he, he brought a Gentile into the inner court of the Jerusalem temple where Gentiles were not supposed to go. And for that, Paul is in prison writing this letter, thanking God that the Ephesian church is demonstrating the reconciliation of Jews and Gentiles into one body called the church. And so this mission is being accomplished, and, and that's what he was referring to last week if you were with us in the park when he said, you also, you also have experienced this reconciliation. Well, the mission then that the church has undertaken, this is, a, this is an incredible responsibility that we have. God's salvation history is moving swiftly into the future. And those who are baptized into the church are jumping onto a moving train that is charging through a landscape that's littered with forces of evil and death and destruction. And this then is an exhilarating ride, but it is not for people who want to kick back in first class. That's not what the church is about. Now, if Paul is to, believe, to be believed in the opening sentence of our passage in Ephesians this morning, and I do believe him, uh, then this, the, the, these folks who are sitting next to you are on this moving train with you. And they're what Paul calls saints. That's a surprise. The person sitting next to you is a saint. The NIV, uh, that's a translation we're using, in this case has done us a terrible disservice because it translates a Greek word, hagius, in this passage, as God's people. Paul means much more like, than that. The word literally means holy ones. Holy ones. Which is at least to be translated God's holy people. And which is more commonly translated saint. I mean... The NIV translation misses the point that Paul's making here. Paul intentionally uses the word saint. He used, it in the, he used it to describe God's people in the first sentence of this letter. And then he uses it eight more times in this letter. Saint. By the way, the word Christian, if you're interested, the word Christian only occurs 
three times in the New Testament. Um, and Paul never uses the word. And maybe that's a good thing because uh, in our culture, it's just become an adjective, right? Christian bookstore, Christian music, right? Christian college, Christian nation. Um, we've, we've trivialized that word. It's become an adjective. But saints, that's a noun. That describes who we are. I mean, we are God's holy people. We're God's separated ones because of what God has done for us in our baptism. Not what we do for God. We're not saints because of what we do for God. We're saints because of what God has done at our baptism. We're to understand ourselves not in terms of how we feel about ourselves, not in terms of, of how others treat us, not in terms of our academic degrees or our financial successes or our physical appearance or our job history, what that says about us, we're to understand ourselves in terms of what God feels about us, how God treats us, how God values us. And when you go home today, I want you to look in the mirror and say to yourself, I am a saint. <laughs> I'm a saint. I'm one of God's holy people. It's who I am because I was baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when I was baptized, I was branded as God's own. God did something to me that set me apart. It is what God has decided about me, my identity, no matter what I or anyone else thinks. And all of us here, sitting here in this room, participating in Holy Trinity Church this morning, can say that we are a community of saints. Now, I'm sure there's a, at least uh, one or two saying, Akon, get real. This church, or any other church in Southern California, let alone any other church in the world this morning, a community of saints? holy people? Wouldn't it be easier to love the church if it just wasn't composed of people? <laughs> well, well, what happens when you come out of the waters of baptism is that you rub your eyes and you look around and you see people you've never seen before. Oh, no, no, I'm, I'm, they've been there all along. But now you see brothers and sisters, folks with whom you are going to spend an eternity. By the way, that, that, that may trouble some of you. Look around right now. So, no, but I mean, folks, folks with whom you've, you've grown up, but folks with whom you will now grow up into the fullness of the stature of Jesus Christ, lest you not grow up at all. Folks, you did not get to handpick because it was God who chose them, who blessed them. This mission that we're on of cooperating with God's salvation history, you see, it's not a private affair. Christianity is not for individuals. It's for a community of saints who are participating in God's plan of redeeming this world. And it can only happen in the company of God's friends. 
and you've been in their company all along. This is it. This is the community of God's saints right here. This is the church, no better, no worse. I love the way Eugene Peterson puts this. Eugene Peterson says this, We continue to maintain this identity by keeping company with people who have first-hand knowledge of who we are. Men and women blessed, chosen, destined, bestowed, lavished, made known, gathered up by God. These same people embarrass us with their haphazardness, exhilarate us with their joy, offend us by their inconsistent lives, comfort us with their compassion, bully and criticize us, encourage and bring the best out of us, bore us with their boldness, or their blandness, I'm sorry, stimulate us with their enthusiasm, but we don't choose them. God chooses them. We keep company with the men and women God chooses, these saints. There's a story about a, a fellow who uh, crossed a border every morning uh, pushing a wheelbarrow full of sand across the border. And, and after a while, he, doing this every morning, the border guards got suspicious that this guy was trying to smuggle some stuff across the border. I mean, he'd take it across in the morning and he'd come back. The next morning, come back with a wheelbarrow full of sand, and they knew he was smuggling something in. And so they started checking the sand and rummaging through it, and, and uh, all they could find was sand. Well, years and years later, uh, one of the border guards saw this man in a pub, and, and he said, you know, the guy that, you know, we figured you were doing something. You were, you were smuggling something across the border. We were sure you were doing that, but we never caught you doing it. He says, were you smuggling something? And he says, oh, yeah. Well, what were you smuggling? Wheelbarrows. <laughs> you see, the point is this. If you're looking for the church, here it is. It's in your midst. In other words, it's hidden in plain sight. This is it. Brothers and sisters, we are the church. We are the community of the King, Lord Jesus. And if you were looking for something else, if you were looking for something more perfect, something other than what you see, then all you will ever see is sand. This is the only church there is. God has not screened folks who make up Holy Trinity Church. He didn't launch the utopian church community when he planted Holy Trinity Church. Because there is no utopian church. In fact, saints are precisely the people that Paul described when he wrote to the Corinthians this, We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world. That's us. And because we saints are just flawed, ordinary folks, whom God has immersed into his own life. That is precisely why Paul launches in to one of two of the most magnificent prayers in the New Testament as he begins this passage in Ephesians. In fact, Paul prays that the eyes of our hearts will be enlightened to see what normal people cannot see. Paul himself has had this experience in the road to Damascus, didn't he? I mean, this is the guy that tried to annihilate the church. But after his eyes, his blinded eyes were open, 
He began to see that as the body of Christ. So this is the community through which God is going to uh, work out his salvation history. I mean, this is the community through which God is going to show all the nations the glory of himself as he continues this long-range plan that he set in motion in the Garden of Eden and that he continued with his covenant to Abraham and to Moses and to David. And then Paul finds it necessary, therefore, to intercede for this church in, in, in the rich prayer that he has, a prayer to the Father to whom all glory belongs, to whom be, belong all the power and the majesty revealed in creation and in redemption. And so he prays for his, his readers to, have a, to be real players in this history, players who take a central part simply because they're the church. And isn't that just like God? Isn't that just like God? To take what seems dead and to surprise us with a resurrection. That's precisely what's going on in the text from Isaiah that we read. What good is a stump of Jesse in the midst of the invading Assyrian forest? Well, from a lowly stump will emerge the dynasty of David that will know no end. Because life is in the divine roots, and wood has hope. And that's precisely what's going on in the text from Luke that we read. What should the disciples make of the bodily appearance of their leader, whose crucifixion they had just witnessed? And even in their joy, they're disbelieving. We read that in the text. They're disbelieving in their joy, and they're wondering... And so out of the dead, another stump, sits the one who shared the last supper before his death to now eat the first breakfast with them to demonstrate it is really him in the flesh. And that's precisely what's going on in this letter in the church to the church in Ephesus. The community, this community faces a daunting task because this church has been placed, it is located in a powerful a powerful major center of imperial importance and influence, and in a city that is incredibly religiously significant because it's a place where a lot of pagan worship goes on. This church in Ephesus has an incredible challenge ahead of itself. But God can make life come out of a stump and can make resurrection happen out of a grave. And we find ourselves, don't we, in our own little Ephesus here in Southern California. And so to participate in God's salvation history, to work for the CEO of the universe without getting an inferiority complex, Paul prays for these saints to become wise and enlightened so that they will come to know the God revealed in Jesus Christ better that they will come to know God more deeply. That's the way it is for disciples. I mean, Jesus made that clear in John 8, 31 and 32. You know, we always quote John 38, 32, the truth will set you free. But that's only half the sentence. Jesus said, if you are my disciple, then you will walk in my words. And then you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. You see, what Jesus says is, you've got to commit first 
before you know the truth. You've got to first enter into a committed relationship with Christ. The world wants to do it the opposite way. The world says, I want the assurances first before I commit to Jesus. Jesus says, no, that's not it. God's order is this. In God's order, you first meet God, you commit, and then you know the truth. Then you get the wisdom. In other words, God does not offer you a prenup. Right? You take the vow for better or for worse, and then you spend a lifetime getting to know this God who also makes a vow to you. And so in this precarious situation that Ephesus finds it, the church in Ephesus finds itself, and the church here in Costa Mesa, Holy Trinity, finds itself, Paul prays that we might have a spirit of wisdom and revelation or, or perception as we come to know God so that the eyes of our hearts will be enlightened, or as N.T. Wright translates it, so that we see things people can't normally see. In other words, to see things we normal people or people don't normally see, like the inheritance and the hope and the power that, that Todd is going to talk about next week. And if you compare this part of Paul's prayer with the early part of what we read from Isaiah, I'm fairly certain that Paul is, is channeling Isaiah at this point because uh, there's, it's very similar in the Isaiah text. He talks about having wisdom and an understanding that leads to the knowledge of God, which is tied up with the fear of the Lord. And certainly Israel, Israel needed to see what others normally couldn't see because they were dominated by Assyria at the time that, that Isaiah wrote this. Now, one of the tasks that I had to complete for, well, all of us have to complete for ordination in uh, the Anglican Church in North America is uh, we had to take the um, uh, Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, the MMPI. I see Julie smiling. She knows about this. Oh, yes. And... Um, those of you in spiritual formation, maybe I'd take that. It's over 500 questions. Yeah. And you have to put down whether you agree or disagree with the statements that they have. They're not really questions or statements. And, uh, and because I, I usually notice things that, that Treveca doesn't notice, uh, because it turns out I'm from Venus and she's from Mars, um, <laughs> because... So I multitask, I'm always looking around, seeing things. Um, when it came to the statement, um, I see things, uh, people and things that others don't see, I put down agree, right? Crazy. Yeah, right. Now, leaving, leaving the examination and getting into my car, I thought, mm, maybe I shouldn't have agreed with that sentence. <laughs> Turns out, though, the results said I show no signs of mental illness, so uh, it all worked out good. But... <laughs> But, I, but isn't that the way we Christians are supposed to be anyway? I, I mean, uh, we, we've got kind of a mental illness, don't we? Uh, right? I mean, we're, we're kind of, we're, we're, I mean, sometimes don't you get that feeling people of the world look at us and say, you're a little off, you know? I mean, Jesus was accused of that. The disciples are accused of that. We're disciples. We're accused of that because, I mean, um, I don't think Paul, in this prayer, I don't think he thinks that Christians automatically will be able to recognize the power of God, for instance, so it takes the wisdom and the perception of the Holy Spirit to help us to see it, to see things that normal people don't see. 
And, and this will come through knowing Jesus and what Paul calls having the eyes of your heart open to God's light. Paul's confident that that's going to happen because he's already become aware of their loyalty to King Jesus and the love that they have for all the saints, whether it's insider Jews or outsider Gentiles. And, and that looked kind of strange to a lot of folks who were looking at this church in Ephesus. The point is this. We don't merely see by looking. Seeing is not the same thing as looking. We don't see reality the way God created it and is in the process of redeeming it merely by looking at our lives in the world. Seeing requires correction. In this case, correction made possible by God's revelation in His incarnation, in Scripture, and in Christ's church. If seeing were merely a matter of looking, then the, the centurion's assessment of the crucifixion of Jesus, that surely this man was the Son of God, would have been shared by all of the Roman garrison that day because they all looked at the same event. If seeing were merely the same thing as looking, then Paul would be wrong to say that the cross is foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews, but that it is to us who believe the power of God into salvation. If seeing were merely looking, then Jesus would not have asked his host, Simon the Pharisee, Do you see this woman, Simon? Because all that Simon saw when he looked at that woman was a prostitute. This is one of the reasons that we are here this Sunday morning and every Sunday morning. To train us to see what is really going on in our lives and in the lives of others and in God's world and in the nations of the world from the perspective of the universe's CEO because all week long others have been attempting to train us to see the world a different way, to see life through the lens of retailers or the fashion and sports and entertainment industries or the political pundits and the ideologues or, or the military strategists. And so we gather together to listen to the word to have a meal with His Son and to experience the ministry of His Spirit through sisters and brothers who offer us their intercessions and give us the peace of Christ's reconciliation. And we learn to see the world the way God sees it. And all of this so that as Paul prays, we might together know Him better. And in getting to know God better, we'll see what He sees. We'll hope for what He hopes for. We'll live as He lived, and maybe we'll even die as He died. If not, we'll never appreciate what Paul wants us to know in the second part of his prayer that we'll look at next week. The hope of our calling, our future inheritance, and God's power that is at work among us right now. All important for us to know as a church in a world of competing powers. All important for us to know lest we move along limply as church through this culture unaware of who we really are by virtue of the fact that we live in the risen Christ. And that's where our life is located right now. When I was a first grader, 
Uh, my mother was instructed by the ophthalmologist to, to train my eyes that had an astigmatism with the bead of a hat pin moving it around so that both of my eyes could train on the same point. And so every night she, she would do this little exercise, you know, first grader not quite understanding what astigmatism is, but nonetheless training my eyes. As you reflect on this passage this morning, what strategies can you ask the Holy Spirit to use this coming week to open the eyes of your heart and change your perception of yourself as one of God's saints based on the fact that it is His decision about who you are, that He's given you an identity that you can live into? What strategies can the Spirit use this week in your life to overcome all the liturgies that you will encounter from the retailers, the news media, the entertainment industry, so that you can see more clearly that history is being guided by the CEO of the universe? What strategies can the Holy Spirit use this week to help you stop digging through the sand to find the perfect church instead of embracing the only imperfect church, the body of Christ, to which God has called you. Maybe it will be a hat pin of prayer. Maybe it will be a hat pin of immersion in God's Word in a way you've never done before. Maybe it will be a hat pin of setting up some iconic reminder in your apartment or your house. Or maybe it will be the hat pin of a brother or a sister to move the bead around you in front of your eyes and help you to see what normal people don't see. Whatever it takes, take time to ask God to help you to see what normal people do not see. Amen.